nudges alone are only one piece of applied behavioral science. Of course, everybody likes the flashy fun. This is a very simple intervention, you know, save more tomorrow program. You just opt people into the program. It has a huge impact. The field's direction has to be toward more complex, larger scale challenges in the long run for the simple reason that these are the challenges that we need to collectively solve as people on Earth. Much of the established work to date within our field has been centered on optimizing systems that exist and making those simple changes that can yield big impact. Welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy with me, Daniel Ross, for the last episode in my series alongside BE Works. Let the tears flow, but I'm joined today by two giants at the firm, scientific advisor Nate Barr and Shannon O'Malley, head of client experiences, to share our highlights of the series and think about what the future holds for BS and BE works. Now, Shannon earned her PhD in cognitive psychology, where she studied the role of attention and visual processing, so she doesn't miss a beat. And among Nate's many writing areas, he's a specialist in pseudo-profound bullshit. So this pair sounds ideal then to help me bring this series to a close. Nate says, In an era defined by human impact, the most important questions to answer are ones about ourselves. We must learn about how we as humans think and act and then use that knowledge to improve outcomes for people around the world. Behavioral science offers both insights and methods to accomplish these aims and holds special promise in securing a safe and prosperous future for humanity. I couldn't have put it better myself. Doors to automatic and cross-check. Let's go. Shannon and Nate, welcome to A Load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It's great to have you both here for our series wrap. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you both. Now, as you know, we've had quite an array of guests on the show over the last couple of months. Let's just start off with our collective reflections of the series. What have you really enjoyed? What were some of the personal highlights, learning, surprises? Who wants to go first? I think, you know, I've been avidly listening along to all of these episodes. And the thing that stands out to me the most as I listen across the episodes is how clear of a picture you get of what it looks like to be a practitioner. So a lot of times when you talk about behavioral science and applied behavioral science or behavioral economics, we're talking with academics who also do some practice, but mostly they live in the academic world. With this series, you're talking to people who are doing the practitioner side Day in, day out, it's all they do. And you start to get a really clear picture of some of the challenges, whether it is what it's like to do all of the stakeholdering that we have to do. Because of course, for any one of these nudges, you can't, or any one of these interventions, I should say, you can't just go out in the world and put it into place. You have to deal with a lot of different people, convince them that this is the right path forward, explain to them what it is we do, bring them along that journey to actually get put into place at the end, but also what the process looks like, right? And as you listen, you can hear a lot of the different practitioners have a very similar process, regardless of what company they work for or what field they're applying it in. There's some form of discovery, diagnostic stage, there's some form of intervention development, so ideation stage, and then there's some form of testing stage, right? And you go through those iteratively to get to a final solution. And so I think ultimately, 
it's just such a beautiful picture of what this field looks like and what it means to be a practitioner. That was the absolute idea and the premise of it from first discussions to get into the weeds of what it actually means to be in the field. So I'm glad that was a primary reflection. What about you, Nate? I think to build on a thread that Shannon laid out there is that there's a lot of dynamic elements within applied behavioral science and also a lot of creativity involved. It's exceedingly rare that we can quickly look to some sort of guidebook or past academic foray and know precisely what to do with any degree of certainty. So we're always inherently looking for something new that matches to the context and we have to extrapolate out. And I think the more you talk to people doing this kind of work in the field, the more you realize how much fresh thinking each challenge requires because we have to adapt and innovate each time we go to the table. Even if it is highly similar to something that's been done in the past, there's always some some new element that needs accounting for. Now, that's a key point, of course, across any practical application of behavioral science that, you know, context matters. One can't just steal the illustration from the literature or from the academic laboratory. One has to adapt it to one's own particular conditions. I mean, for me, just a couple of things I'd share as I reflect back on the last weeks. I've really loved the mix of BE Works conversations and then direct industry ones and that we've crisscrossed sectors giving breadth. And I think in the end, all the themes that we've covered are in the center of our zeitgeist, right? You know, fi our finances, healthcare, gender equality, poverty, social equity, the sustainability of our planet. On that subject, I really enjoyed talking to your colleague, David Thompson, last week, actually, on sustainability and the environment. And what really interests me on that subject, and I'd love to get your thoughts, is, you know, where does more responsibility lie for change? Is it with companies? Is it with governments? Or is it at a domestic level? Or maybe it's somewhere across all three, because I think particularly with this sustainability challenge, the major psychological barrier to more action at play here is a present bias. Or we could maybe refer to something like the values action gap. In other words, how do we really motivate people to change small behaviors now for a collective good? And how do we then create immediate concrete benefits for impact, which we don't obviously see in front of us? I mean, I wonder, I mean, that challenge isn't only for sustainability, of course, but I mean, how do you see that? It's a great question. I mean, I think the other concept I would add in there is the drop in the bucket challenge, right? Which is people feel like, well, I'm one individual. I don't think changing my light bulbs is really going to save the planet, right? But the reality is we need change at all of those three levels, right? Absolutely, you have to have change at the system and the organization level. You have companies, you have industry that are producing just massive amounts of carbon into the world. And so you have to address that. You have to have change at that level. But when you look at the estimates of where it's coming from, the individual behavior change matters as well. And of course, the individual behavior change impacts what companies do, right? The pressure, companies aren't going to change if they don't think there's pressure coming from the outside in order to drive that change. So you have to bring people along at the individual level, help them make those changes, but also encourage them to change what they're purchasing or change their patterns of behavior to try and drive down the demand, for example, on the oil industry or try and reduce purchasing of, you know, fast fashion and things that have these very large impacts on the environment. Nate, I wonder, is this tension between the short term, the immediate and the long term, something that you come across in your work much? I think there's always inherently that tension between our short-term aspirations and the longer-term ones. And my interest in this area particularly center around this concept of the Anthropocene, which is the term used to describe the fact that we are best now described as being in the human epoch. So if you look at the planet, 
you know, over the course of the Earth's history, there's many ways you could look at it and say, this is the dominant feature, you know, think an ice age. Now, geologists and others have rallied around this notion that we're living in this human time, where the most stark reality of what Earth looks like today is human activity. And so what does that mean for behavioral science? It means that, for one, if we want to understand the cause of these disruptions to Earth systems, we need to look to human behavior. Likewise, when we think about solutions, we also need to be thinking about human behavior. I'm a huge fan of George Miller, eminent cognitive psychologist, and a quote from him always resonated, which is that the most urgent problems of our world today are the problems we made for ourselves. There are human problems whose solutions will require us to change our behavior and our social institutions. So going back to that stratified look at the mechanisms of change, it really is top to bottom. You know, you could roll out policies from the top down, but if the people aren't behind it, it won't resonate. Likewise, you know, corporate social responsibility is going to fall flat if individuals aren't aligned to those goals. So it's a messy world. And I think the urgency, particularly in the sustainability space, means we need pretty well-structured cross-sectoral discussions about what we can do about this at all levels. I found in my professional work that in the end, all projects which are about change, in other words, which are about innovating something, disrupting the modus operandi, in the end become organizational change projects. They drift quickly from strategic alignment and are more about how one organizes and moves people, persuades, influences, and tries to shift behavior over time. Those are the big challenges. What you say absolutely resonates. You, of course, put it far more articulately than I attempted to, but we're thinking the same thing. The other podcast, which I particularly like, again, comes from one of your colleagues, Ada Lee. I really thought she talked so fluently about fundamental issues on patient care in hospitals. I mean, moving from sustainability to healthcare, two of the absolute issues of our time. And what struck me was it sounds so obvious that to say that we must recognize patients as humans rather than numbers, this is the point that she made. But I was quite shocked, perhaps naively, that this is actually an issue in hospitals. Although I'm, I'm aware that when resources are constrained, there are times when you know, allocation of care must be determined with a colder heart. But it prompted me actually to consider how much more opportunity there is to influence health outcomes with more placebo-like treatments, which might not even be, say, pills and potions, but in the way we think about pre- and post-operation care, how we talk to patients, because I think the language that we use creates its own set of expectations. And Nate, we were just talking about creativity and big ideas before we started recording. I've just actually finished reading a book by Sam Tatum, who runs behavioral science at Ogilvy globally. And he's published an excellent book called Evolutionary Ideas, which I recommend, which actually gave some lovely examples amongst other behavioral science principles of the peak end effect, which we're familiar with, which says that we have evolved to rate experiences by a mix of the most memorable moment and then the end. So we know, in other words, we don't weigh up all the elements of a holiday and then create an average rating. We tend to remember the highlight moments and the end of it. And so I was started to wondering how this could play out in healthcare. And of course, Dan Ariely from Your Stable, who I spoke to as well, actually refers to this idea, I think, indirectly in his discussion on making the end of life the best possible chapter. I think it's just an interesting question to throw out there, like how might care centers take advantage of the peak end effect to make difficult situations more bearable, even memorable? I wonder whether that strikes you as worthwhile exploration, a rather long ramble, but uh, it was something, part of the series that particularly struck me. I wonder what you think of that. 
I'll use maybe one of the examples that Ada had pulled up in her interview when she talked about her own labor and delivery when she had her son. And I will say I am currently about seven months pregnant. I've already had one. I've been through it before. And now I'm going through it a second time. And when I reflect on that experience, there are the moments that you interact with a doctor where they come in, they check on you. And of course, there are the moments that feel very traumatic from just a physical pain and physical experience. But so much of the memory of that time is grounded in how you interact with the staff at the hospital the interactions you have with the nursing staff, the interactions you have with the doctor, what they say to you, how they guide you, how they interact with you, whether or not they're listening to you and what you're saying, and if you feel like you've been heard. That experience over and above some of the sort of traumatic, painful experiences is what resonates with you afterwards. And if you can solve for some of those challenges where the interaction doesn't go very well or you feel as a patient you haven't been heard or your viewpoint hasn't been shared, that will go a long way to changing people's experience of it, their memory of it. And ultimately, I think the outcomes, because even when you follow, when you look at something like labor and delivery, when you start talking to women after, this is one of those topics that women don't talk about very much until you've had a baby and suddenly everybody shares their story with you, right? So as you start talking about it, you realize, at least in the Western world, at least amongst the women I talk to, most women have some form of a traumatic story around labor and delivery. It's very rarely the story of, I went into the hospital, everything went very smoothly, I had a baby four hours later, and it was lovely, right? There's usually a lot of bumps, a lot of pain, a lot of challenges. They didn't get the epidural. They had to get an epidural and they didn't want it. They had to have a C-section and they didn't want it. There's all of these challenges that tend to happen. It tends to be very traumatic. And that carries with you the first few weeks, first few months, maybe even first few years following that labor and delivery. And of course, now you're trying to raise a child and you're dealing with these memories and you're dealing with this painful experience. Solving for that trauma, reducing that trauma, even though you know there's going to be changes, right? Changing how the conversations happen in the room can change the experience after and the memory of it afterwards so that they're dealing with less trauma later as they're starting to become a new mother or adapt to having more children than they had before and making that easier and ultimately making the outcomes better. So I definitely think there's tremendous opportunity in that area to study more and pay more attention to what's happening there. I mean, I've got two children. You're about to have a second. Nate's got three. So between yeah. us, I mean, I think we, we should know what we hope we know a, a thing or two. I mean, Nate, does that resonate with you with a busy family and people getting sick and ill all the time? Where my mind went was that when we look back, speaking of traumatic memories, we look at the scope and scale of this pandemic that we're still going through. And I think there's an aggregate level analysis that you can make quite easily, which is, you know, the pandemic illuminated the fractured nature of our health systems. But the kind of stuff that Shannon's alluding to here is those individual stories that are a consequence of that systems level challenge. And this illustrates, again, this interplay between the higher order systems that govern how we as humans navigate the world and that individual level experience. And I know our hope is that people are more receptive to this human-centered perspective because we're seeing more and more people come forth and articulate some of the challenges they've had. And again, this higher order global level experience that we all shared has manifested in all kinds of unique individual trying and challenging circumstances. And now the task ahead is to look both at the aggregate and the individual levels and figure out where are these places where we can intervene either to optimize existing systems or, you know, potentially build entirely new ones. Absolutely. 
let's turn our attention briefly to your guys' work at BE Works, although we touched on bits of it with your colleagues, David and Ada, but what are the interventions, the projects that you're most proud of, the ones that really excite you, the experiments that you think should be held up for attention? One of my favorite projects that I had the opportunity to work on was a transit fare evasion project in Santiago, Chile. So this was looking at people boarding buses who, as they board the bus, don't pay, right? In some cases, they're jumping turnstiles. In some cases, they're boarding on the back doors where there isn't a payment machine. So they're sort of escaping notice and riding the bus for free. Now, this is a challenge across the world. So a lot of cities deal with this high rates of evasion. And of course, what high rates of evasion mean is there's less money, there's less funds to go into improving the transit system, either operating new routes, updating the buses, moving to electric buses, all of those types of things. So it's a challenge that they want to constantly reduce. One of the traditional approaches, of course, is ticketing, right? Anybody who's ridden public transit is familiar with the idea that if, if you board, and you don't pay, then somebody at some point might come along, check if you have any proof of purchase, and if you don't, give you a ticket for it. Now, in Santiago at the time, they didn't want to increase. They had relatively low rates of ticketing. They didn't want to increase it because, of course, that's a very expensive intervention. It's also a very heavy-handed intervention. So they were looking for more behaviorally driven approaches to solving this challenge. And we had the opportunity to go down there, do an assessment, ride the buses ourselves, talk to bus drivers, talk to the government, talk to the transit agency, really understand the system and develop a couple interventions. And we ended up developing two interventions. One of the very clear things that came through at the time was there was a very negative perception of the transit system. Now, there's a complicated backstory of reasons for that that I won't go into, but there was a very negative sentiment towards the system. And so you've got this sense that people felt like it was justified to not pay. It was perfectly fine to not pay. And on some routes, they were dealing with up to 30% fare evasion. So this is very significant, more than what you would see in most cities. And so that was a very strong sentiment. And we wanted to do something that would help connect people more to the bus drivers, connect them more to the idea that you're not cheating the government. It's not this large government system that, that you're cheating. You're actually cheating more of the bus operators and the owners of these bus lines because it's a private system there where they're actually cheating the bus drivers and the system. So we put in a, a simple intervention for that one just trying to humanize the bus drivers. So put a board, they could write some information about themselves on the board and it would change daily. And we would see if they had a stronger connection with the bus driver, the hypothesis was they would be more likely to pay. Now, the other thing that we observed in the other intervention that we put into place was that during times of rush hour, everybody just crams onto the bus and they don't care about boarding at the front versus at the back of the bus. So a lot of people board at the back. It's too difficult to get to the front of the bus and so they don't pay. So we also put a payment machine at the back of the bus. Now, this sounds very obvious. This is one of those great interventions that feels like, of course, that's what you should do. But within the transit industry, there's a very strong negative at the time. This was around 2017, 2018. At the time, a very strong on buses negative sentiment towards doing that. The idea was if you put the payment machine at the back of the bus, people would board, but because the driver's not right there, they would still not pay. And so you're allowing people, you're actually giving them license to not pay when they board the bus by doing that. So we convinced them, look, everything in behavioral economics, the number one thing you do is make it easy. So let's just try and make payment a little bit easier and see if we can increase payments. And as we tested this, so we tested this on a bus route live across, I think it was 10 days, the two different interventions in various combinations. And of course, what we found was putting the payment machine at the back doors significantly reduced evasion. 
our other intervention that we thought that when we were doing our stakeholder conversations, everybody thought might have the bigger impact, didn't have any impact at all. The one that's more complicated, the one that's more driven by social norms and social connection did not work. The one where making it easy had the biggest impact and, and is exactly what was needed, right? So I love that story because there's two things that I always take away from that. One is sometimes the more complicated intervention or the more high level social norms intervention that seems like it's the bigger problem really isn't. It's actually just making it easier looking at more of those structural interventions. And the other is the importance of testing, right? You could have gone straight ahead with both of those things and you might never have known which one really worked, which one didn't work. You also, without testing, it was going to be very difficult to convince the government and all of the bus operators to invest in putting these payment machines at the back of the bus. Because without the evidence saying, yes, this is what works, they have to spend a lot of time, a lot of effort and money investing in these additional payment machines, putting them there, and they already have this strong sense that it's not going to work. So that experiment really helped impact how they were thinking about the problem. I really like the approach of running two experiments concurrently, assuming they were concurrent, if not sequential. But I think, as you say, it's just a great example of a relatively low-cost, simple solution. Very easy now probably to post-rationalize, but hard, probably harder to pre-rationalize before implementing. And I think it goes to the heart of what good behavioral scientists are doing, which is to focus on a very specific behavior to change, identify the psychological barriers preventing it, and then just making it, amongst other things, extremely easy to do and providing very kind of clear instructions and benefits for doing so. So thank you for that. It was a really great and detailed example. But let's then let me flip the question a little towards the future rather than the past and ask you, Nate, more about what the future holds for BE Works. What really matters most to you, either individually or collectively? What are the kinds of problems that we should be devoting time to now? It's a great question. I think there's a lot of human challenges that lie before us. We've already touched on a few of the different areas of human experience that require some form of behavioral solution, sustainability, financial well-being, healthcare, workplace design, how we navigate the complexity of the world generally. And our view is that the field's direction has to be toward more complex, larger scale challenges in the long run for the simple reason that these are the challenges that we need to collectively solve as people on earth. And I think a central question for the field is how can we go about doing so? Much of the established work to date within our field has been centered on optimizing systems that exist and making those simple changes that can yield big impact. But in the face of the scale of the challenges that we collectively are wrestling with as society, I think the recognition that behavioral science has an integral part to play is really crucial. And some of the things we're talking a lot about are collaboration. How do we, for example, intersect our practice with designers that are shaping the nature of the physical and digital worlds we navigate? How can we work with data science practitioners and other folks in the technology world to, you know, handle more precise and customized delivery of messaging or interventions? How can we work with policymakers and business leaders to get that higher order buy-in? So I think if I were to sum it up, the future of behavioral science is bright. It needs to be more ambitious and we need to develop these new ways of working in conjunction with other stakeholders across society to let our ambition be matched by our impact. It's interesting because through this series, you know, we've shared so many thought-provoking and inspiring examples of behavioral science at play, crossing subjects like vaccine adherence to 
you know, the cultural preferences of grab drivers in different countries to dealing critically with potent gender imbalances in Northern Africa, talking to Clemence at Magenta Consulting and similarly with Zainal Thief and the team at the World Bank. But it provokes a question in me, which perhaps is a challenge back to what you've just said, that you know, if, as we believe, behavioral science is so powerful, why, as of now, are more businesses just not using it? I think a simple response to that is that the field itself is quite young, right? You know, if you look, it was only the late 1800s that we saw the first proper psychological laboratories dedicated to the basic discovery of principles of the human mind. It wasn't until, you know, Skinner arguably was one of the first to discuss the implications of applying psychology to daily life. For example, in his book, Walden Two, we saw people like George Miller cry to give psychology away. And it's only much more recently that we saw the rise of behavioral economics as a fusion of both psychology, economics, and a number of other approaches. You know, we're talking, when did Nudge come out? You know, a little more than 10 years ago. So I think at a certain level, there's a healthy recognition that we're new relative to other ways of doing business, other ways of making governance decisions. And I think that an important part of growing adoption is conversations like this, where we consider deeply what it means to take a behavioral approach, the benefits that can be accrued in a variety of domains, and to familiarize more people that this is a methodology and a lens through which to view the world, which can help us collectively achieve our aims. And I think that to me is one of the biggest challenges we face as a field is that we need to get more people aware of how this actually looks in practice and figure out ways to get involved in some of these very pressing and important social and economic challenges we face. Let me nudge you, Shannon. Then, I mean, what do you think needs to change in the industry, building on what Nate's just said? What are the practical changes that we need to make to popularize behavioral science further? Yeah, I think one of the challenges we see, and it's kind of an interesting one because it, it's also what made the application of behavioral science very popular, is the predominance of nudge theory, right? There's nothing wrong with nudge theory and the interventions that come from nudges. But I think it was Clemence actually that talked about this as well, which is nudges alone are only one piece of applied behavioral science. And when you look at some of the intro courses or look at some of the popular press that's out there, you can very quickly get the impression that nudges are the whole thing, right? That introducing these types of nudges. And when you listen to the case studies, that comes through sometimes too, because of course, everybody likes the flashy fun this is a very simple intervention, you know, save more tomorrow program, you just opt people into the program, it has a huge impact. Those are great stories to talk about, they stick with people. But the reality is, and, and some of what Nate's talking to is, in order to have a larger impact, we have to work together at scale with a lot of different stakeholders, with designers, with developers, and we have to look at interventions that are more systemic, more holistic across the board, still grounded in behavioral science, but pushing past maybe some of these more simple nudges. That's still going to be part of the tool set. That's still going to be part of what we do, but looking towards other interventions and other ways of approaching challenges that are more holistic and are going to drive this larger scale change. Got it. Well, as we rally towards the end, let me ask you both one final question. Where do you both struggle to practice what you preach? In other words, what are your own personal, terrible behavioral biases and susceptibilities that you just cannot get over? 
you know, I have my share of vices like most other humans, but I'd say the one that pops out is this tendency to want to take on more than I truly have time to do. When you look around at the type of things we're talking about today, there are innumerable challenges to try and sink your teeth into. And this is something that I struggle with at an individual level, but it, it comes around to the field as well. You know, how do we pick the right alleyway to run down and try and make change? And, and I think that's something that both I and the field probably need to figure out. Is there a cognitive bias with a name on it? Because if not, this could be your moment for the bar bias. I think the closest I can think of is probably the planning fallacy. It's going to be a quite simple, direct line. But, you know, when you look at some of these cases we've done and just, you know, your own personal experience, I think we all realize nothing's ever as simple as it seems. So we need to account for that complexity. And I just need to personally account for a few more hours on everything I do, probably. Yeah, I think bar bias has a nice alliterative effect, which is more poetic than the current version. But anyway, Shannon, over to you. Absolutely. So I would say I'm a terrible procrastinator. So I have a tendency to just leave everything to the last minute. And of course, this used to drive my mom insane when I was a child. So when I would study for school, if there was an exam or an assignment, I would study the day before. I would do the assignment. I would stay up till midnight doing the assignment. And it would drive her crazy because I would do that. And then, of course, I would get 85 90% on whatever it was. And she would be infuriated because I didn't learn my lesson. And I think that reinforcement carried with me through into my adult life. So I have a tendency with work, I'm a little bit better. I put some things into place to try and reduce that. But in my personal life, I have a tendency, things like setting up savings accounts or retirement savings or setting up my will. I have a tendency to know I need to do it and just keep pushing it down, pushing it down the road. Every once in a while, I figure out a way to create a little nudge for myself to make sure I get those things done though. Yeah, my blockers are also definitely in the financial services arena, certainly in like mental accounting area. So for example, if I send back an item of clothing, because it doesn't fit or I don't like it, if I get that 100 bucks back, I have re-identified that as free money, and then believe that I can go and treat myself on all sorts of other things that I wouldn't have otherwise done had it just been in my bank account before making this purchase. I'm extremely prone to that. But I kind of quite enjoy it. So I accept the vice and just go with the trick of mind and fall for it every time. Anyway, with that, Nate and Shannon, let me close us out for this series of a load of BS, a practitioner's guide to the BS galaxy. It's really been a huge pleasure and privilege to partner with you all. I've learned an enormous amount about so many topics that we've touched on financial services, healthcare, transportation, FMCG, sustainability, and so much of the amazing social development work across the world from the inspiring stories that we took from Zena and the team at the World Bank and Clemence in particular at Magenta Consulting. And what I take away from all of it and today really is the increasing potential of behavioral science to solve tough, intractable problems in really creative ways. And of course, the brilliance of so many practitioners like yourselves in the field coming up with thoughtful and mind-bending experiments that just make you go, wow, I would love to have come up with that. How might I emulate that? And I really hope that our listeners have grasped some of that sentiment too. So only to say, I hope this won't be our last conversation, guys. And thank you both so much. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great pleasure. Again, thank you, Nate, Shannon, and everyone at BE Works for making this series such great fun. Now, here at Adelode of BSHQ, there's no rest for the wicked, and so we shall be back next week with Mother Superior in Nipple Tassels, otherwise known as behavioral scientist Patrick Fagan. Now, Patrick takes psychological academia and applies it to business, so have your notepad at the ready for lots of tips and tricks. 
And as ever, if you enjoy these podcasts, please do leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your support is what makes us tick. Thank you, and see you next time.